3: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Ender Now then, I've come up with a brand new game, which uh, could well sweep the world. It could be the new X Factor, for all we know. Um, it's called Snooker Player Bingo. And what I did was I wrote down 20 snooker players, past and present. I allotted them all a number, from 1 to 20. I gathered Phil Yates and Neil Folds, and indeed Alan McManus, because Alan sort of stumbled into it, not knowing what we were doing, and I invited him to take part... Basically, they, they named a number and then corresponded to the player, and we just had stories and anecdotes about that player. It's a very simple concept, and I think it goes pretty well. We had a lot of fun doing it, and hopefully, you'll have a lot of fun listening to it. Okay, Neil, you can go
1: first. Pick a number 14. Number 14, straight away. It's a contemporary, Danny Fowler. <laughs> Danny Fowler, dustbin Danny. Uh, I played him, actually. Uh, a few, he was a bit of a bogey player for me. Um, I played him in the UK Championship qualifiers in my second season as a professional uh, and as I say as an amateur he'd beat me a couple of times
0: the cap, and
1: we I uh, played at Stockport in the little Masters Club in there uh, and at the interval I was 5-3 up first to nine obviously UK um, as it was then and then the referee was a guy called Nobby Clark. he decided that I was late for the evening session he oh. thought it was a 7 o'clock start even though it was 7.30 and this argument went on. I docked two frames. Um, it took about an hour to get the frames back. I didn't think we were starting
3: with this acrimony. I thought yeah, were well, was
1: no. going to be a, a friendly chat. My dad actually <laughs> had to phone up the, the WSA office. Clearly nobody was there that time of yes. night. Uh, and in the end, I got my frames back but lost the match. Wow! And afterwards, actually said to me, the WSA said wrongly, this said to me, you can have the match replayed if you want. But of course, it, the moment had gone.
0: So right. that's my memory of Danny Fowler. D- dustman Danny. I mean, he was a dustman. Well, he was. And I remember on one occasion, he beat Martin Clark in the UK Championship, and the headline in the local paper, the Expressing Star, was, uh, Dusbin Danny Dumps Dismal Clark, (laughs) which was alliteration taken to the extreme. Two things I remember about Fowler. He was very unlucky in a ranking event semi-final against Stephen Hendry, who fluked the Brown against him. Um, Hendry beat him, I think it was 5-4. The other thing I remember off-table was the fact that his manager... (coughs) was involved in a major altercation with Alex Siggins over in Dubai. That's
3: not unusual though, in fairness. No, I mean, most no, people were.
0: No, but this was involved being in the pool. Yeah. And this guy was so annoyed with him, and he could handle himself as well. This guy was so annoyed with Higgins that basically he was ducking him under the pool and Higgins couldn't swim. And every time Higgins came up, he issued a particular expletive and this guy was ducking him back under the pool. Alex Higgins <laughs> might feature... <what> might <laughs> yeah, do. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's 1 to 20, actually. I yeah, think, you
1: know. last heard, I think he's working in, on an organic farm somewhere in, in, the, in the Midlands okay. or something. That's what I heard County about
0: Yeah, I heard that, yeah. Oh.
1: yeah. I don't, it could be rubbish, but that's
3: <laughs> what I heard. Maybe he's listening.
0: OK, Phil, you pick a number. Seventeen.
3: One of the legends of the game, Dodd Mountjoy.
1: There's lots of stories about Doug, aren't there? I no, mean, what another player you about, lost
0: to. Another,
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, when I played him in the World Championship and I beat him by that record score, yeah. it sounds like I'm bigging myself up when saying that. I beat him thirteen-one. He was about to change his game. Uh, at that point, he was in the middle. Frank Cullen had, had got onto him, and uh, he was dreadful in that match. Really poor. And then later on in the year, I played him again in the UK Championship. So it was the same year, but a different season. And you can imagine it's like, what are we talking, uh, April uh, through to November. Anyway, Doug's turned up. I thought, just beating him 31 in the world. You know, it's going to be all right. And he's still doing the, you know, he's still got the uh, Frank Cullen new Q action going. Played marvellous against me. He beat me 9-4. And I thought, well, this is, how bad can you get? How can you beat someone so comfortably and lose so heavily? I remember opening the sort of, almost smashing the door down of, of the guild hall trying to get out of the arena saying this is an all-time low and of course what happens goes on and wins mm. three consecutive centuries against Hendry no
0: less in yeah. the final so uh, it wasn't me it was him <laughs> as they say <laughs> Neil doesn't remember this but I do at that World Championship when Neil beat him with a session to spare at one point the cue ball was under the cushion and he actually topped it it was just mm. awful. It's almost a miss like yeah, on yeah, yeah, the technique had completely gone, and what Frank did was remarkable. He just completely reinvigorated Doug's game, and everyone thinks, well, he was forty-six. He won the UK Championship in nineteen eighty-eight. Fantastic, and it was, but it was the way he played. Stephen didn't play badly in that final at all, as Neil said. Doug made three consecutive centuries. He was amazing, and then he won the next world ranking event as well the Mercantile Credit Classic beating Wayne Jones in the final so to win two in succession at the age of 46 one of the great achievements golden spell yeah. for him wasn't it yeah.
3: and arguably I mean it's difficult to compare eras but arguably one of the best players not to be world champion he won the Masters yeah. he won the UK and of his time he was one of, the, one of the top
0: players and for a while he had the highest break ever in the world championship 145 and he got to a final as well of course he was the victim when Steve won the first of his six world titles absolutely one of the best players yeah. never to win the world title although he did win the World Amateur Championship. Mm.
3: This isn't funny in a way, but I'll tell it, I'll tell it anyway. He, he, it might be funny in retrospect. He, he did some, of course, he was very ill, he had a lung removed, and, and, but he did some coaching for World Snooker. And he was out in Malta one year at the, at the venue there, and every day he had to climb up about 40 steps to get to the top level where he was coaching. And of course, it took a lot out of him because he only had one lung, couldn't breathe properly, it would take about five minutes to recover. And on the last day, someone very cheerily said to him, You know, there's a lift, Doug. I thought, why did you tell him? On, why didn't you tell him on the first day? The poor old soul. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's Doug Mountjoy still going strong. He pra- practices he's still in uh, Mark Williams' club.
1: He Saw him at the, the World Seniors yeah. a couple of years ago, you know, and I we, we spoke about a couple of matches because he beat me uh, at the Crucible the year uh, after I beat Alex Higgins. Yeah. He beat me heavily, absolutely all over me. And I, I spoke about this at this World Seniors a couple of years back. He had no recollection of us ever mm. playing. Well, if he's listening, then maybe but that'll he, 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 his memory. Yeah, yeah, just because he did. not bothered about the yeah. past.
3: OK, Neil, your turn. Two. Number. Number two. John Virgo. Now, the reason he's on the list is a lot of people know John Virgo, obviously, as a commentator. They know him from Big Break. But we shouldn't ignore his playing career. He was a UK champion.
1: He was a great, great snicker player. I used to practise with him a lot. And, uh, I learnt an awful lot from John uh, As you say, it's almost someone that you've forgotten about having ever played. It was all all about uh, big break and all of that and the funny waistcoats and what he is now. I think he's a really terrific summariser, actually. I really enjoy listening to John right now. But as a
0: player, uh, break building, absolutely top class, top class. Well I've been fortunate to work with John on a very limited basis doing commentary and it's only when you work with people you appreciate just how knowledgeable they are and I really enjoyed the experience and I think he's excellent yeah and I think the other thing about him is even though you know he's been doing the media side of the game for years he's still genuinely enthusiastic and that comes through in his commentary which I love um, Two things about him as a player, one he was very right-eyed wasn't he? You know, the master I was right-eyed and he was on, on, that side of the, on that side with the queue. The other was the fact that when he won the UK Championship, he did so despite being docked frames.
1: That's right, against Terry in the yeah, final. Got
0: the time wrong. Yeah, it got, because they been uh, <laughs> there'd been all kinds of issues with a TV strike and things like that, and then the final began at a completely different time to all of the rest of the matches. And I think he was docked to two frames, and yet he won the match regardless.
3: I saw him play uh, the first time I actually went to the Crucible to watch. It was him against Gary Wilkinson. It was, they were last-minute tickets. I've got to be honest. Um, and it was excruciating. Four frames to the interval. Absolutely, just terrible. They neither could pot a ball. And when they went to the interval. One of the lights, you know, the famous lights in the crucible, popped, it was like a loud bang, and, and some wag in the crowd shouted, John Verger's just shot himself, because he'd, he'd, he'd lost the first four <laughs> frames. That, that, that's what's what was known as banter in those days. <laughs> yeah. uh, just one more thing yeah. about
1: him. I, I have to say this, because when I was like, just starting to do a few exhibitions, it, it was always the thing that you had to do trick shots. And yeah. As a youngster, I was terrified of the thought of doing them. Uh, and one day, my dad said that John, John has offered to, to come into the club for a day and go through all of his trick shot repertoire and teach them all. And he did that for. Them. I thought right. it was really kind yeah. of did it for nothing. You know, yeah. all the shots, uh, a few ways of setting them up. But I'll never forget that.
3: Actually, his, his impressions of the players were funny. Like people bring them up now, almost like as sort of yeah. oh, those old days.
0: They were actually really good. The other thing I remember about him, of course, a former chairman of the WPBSA, and it was at the time when we had that European Open in Deauville Uh, which was a complete disaster, calamity there was no one there, Northern France in 1989, there wouldn't be anybody in Northern France maybe now but back then literally nobody in the arenas at all and I'm doing this uh, piece I think it was to the Daily Express and I was putting it through to copy at the time because there was no email back then and I'm doing this really critical piece about why did they bring the tournament here, I put the phone down onto the, on the copy, saying, OK, thanks, great, cheers put the phone down, look around, there's John listening to every word I've said, I've been slagging <laughs> <laughs> off his regime <laughs> and yet they still allow you
3: into venues and
0: at that same tournament, he played Eddie Charlton and Eddie played excruciatingly slowly unusually for him, yeah, yeah. and in the last frame he cleared up, and it was one of those where he's clearing up into one particular side of the table, so it's blue into the left middle Pink and black into the other, the left top pocket, and when he's on the blue, and Virgo knows he's going to lose, he just walks out. So any parts of the Balls to win. Turns had to shake his hand, and he wasn't God. there. <laughs> yeah.
3: Okay, uh, Phil, it's your turn. Hi, Hi Alan. We're, Hi, we're calling the podcast, but feel free to join in. No, we are. No, seriously, we're just talking about play. in fact you're on this list. Actually, by the way, go.
0: Oh, I was on the list. Yeah. Picking you? a bracket on that I'll say number seven.
3: Uh, Gary Wilkinson. I'll just explain to Alan what we're doing. Alan McManus joins us, by the way. Hi basically, guys. we've written down... I've written down a list of players, past and present, and we're literally just telling stories about them. Oh, OK. So.
1: Well, <laughs> Gary Wilkinson, the thing I remember now, and I'm pretty sure it was that it was when he played Steve Davis in the UK Championship. Did he beat Did he beat Jimmy White 9-0? Yeah. First of all. Yeah. And he had Davis beaten, um, and it got down to the pink and black. To, correct me if I'm wrong. And... Steve needed a snooker And, and Gary, but, but Gary, Gary didn't, read, didn't know read, yeah. ah. and I've never known that before he was about 14 or 15 <laughs> in front and he played the pink at long range really really thin to play the safety shot when he didn't need to do it and he missed it um, and then of course he lost the match and apparently after the match he tells the story that he was asked to sign all the programmes still oblivious to the fact that, that Steve needed a snooker in the first place and he, he'd given away this foul for no obvious
0: reason and he threw all the programmes on the floor. He couldn't believe it. He didn't know. Yeah, he, he was told and it was confirmed to him at the press conference and he just went ashen. It was terrible, terrible. I mean, he genuinely thought he needed to hit that pink thin. I actually remember the shot, the, the the pink. I'm sure the pink was on the bulk cushion. It was. The white was on the black end yes. and
2: missed it. And then, then I'll get there, quickly, i get done with it, Yes
0: the thing with Wilkinson I mean, he won the world match play which is a very good tournament to win at the time came close to winning the British Open he was 6-3 up on Stephen Hendry in the final uh, eventually lost ten nine. 9 he was a very very tough match player towards the end of his career I think he became sort of full of indecision and consequently he became quite slow but a really formidable player who was in the not just in the top 16, but in the top eight. And if you can get there in the era he was playing, you've got to be able to play the game very, very well. But you've got the best, Gary Wilkinson. Story. Well, you
3: say became quite slow. I was—is oh, this Jason Ferguson? Yes. Yeah, you're not kidding. I know because, coming. I know was <laughs> because this was the final qualifier for the World Championship uh, years ago. I'd only just started out and was being sort of, you know, thought I should actually attend and not sort of leave early like everyone else did, little knowing that they started the final session at six o'clock. It was still going at one o'clock in the morning. Bruce Beckett, who was then the Will Snooker Press Officer, went in to have a look because the, the last frame seemed to be going a long time. And he's come out after about twenty minutes. He said, "This ain't going anywhere. There's five reds on the top cushion. Ow. They're just playing off them." It lasted about, I think, about eighty minutes. The last frame finished about twenty to two in the morning. It's
1: pretty evil, wasn't it? And I
3: waited for the quotes. Oh, there were no quotes, obviously. He, <laughs> I said to Gary, "Yeah, well, you must be really happy you qualified." And he just, and I said, "But it took a long time, didn't it?" He said, "Well, it doesn't matter how you get there." And that was it. Got in his car, drove home.
0: <laughs> but Dave wasn't the only spectator.
3: Oh no, there was yeah, there was. a... Well, there was, I think he was basically a tramp. I mean, let's, let's not let's not be coy. He was basically, a tramp coming well. to shelter from the the weather outside. And uh, e- eventually, he left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seven, he was eighteen. He went home. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was yeah, that was that was the audience. Okay. Well, Alan, you you choose a number, one one to twenty. Seventeen. Uh, We've had that. You weren't there for that. Okay. Eleven. Uh, Eleven is Tony Drago. Well, of course. Oh, uh, well, actually, of course. In recent times, Alan, you, you sort of featured slightly in the Tony
2: Drago story. Wow. Yeah, I, mean, well, I, I think th- we've we'll, we'll, we'll all got stories with a tornado in it. Um, the one at, uh, at, at Sheffield, the, I think it was a German qualifier or something. And obviously it was four each, and he, and he, he, he thought it was, he conceded basically when he could still win. Yeah. And he's left me the blue, which is. And he's realised he's going to be fined, because that's the rule, isn't it? Well, he, he actually didn't realise oh, he right. was going to be fined. The referee kind of a said to him, and then Tony sort of I <laughs> thought it's not what you do is it? Oh, all oh right, okay. Well, now can you maybe retract it? You know, but look, the, the point of it was at the time. If a guy, if you're playing out there and a guy shakes your hand gets my cue's mentally and, my, and physically in my cue case, yeah, it's not of course, come, it's yeah. not coming back out. And then, um, but you know, obviously the. We've all seen the footage of Tony. On well, he put,
3: if you haven't seen it, he punched himself in the face. Yeah. And that's Quite what he did. Good,
2: good yeah. punch yeah, as well. It was a good punch. <laughs> um, but look, the, the funny thing about it was, I was now driving back home up the A66, and uh, I got my phone went and uh, it was Tony. Hmm. He said, "Oh, Alan, Alan, listen, I'm really sorry about what happened, and da da da." But he said, "He said the thing is, we should know better." So, uh, what do you mean we? <laughs> so, like, so, But that's just Tony, it? you know, it was, a, it was
3: a good story. I think it's fair to say if you get on a plane, you don't want to see Tony sit down next to you because he's a very no. nervous flyer.
1: Yeah. He's pretty <laughs> terrified of that, isn't he? And the other thing about Tony, and recently I've only found out that uh, Jimmy White gives him a ring quite a lot. He finds him up mm. almost every day. At the World Championships when I was uh, with you guys at Eurosport... Um, Jimmy phones Tony and he's the, and if you listen to Tony it's, it's all in good fun he, you know, he, he enjoys his food there's no getting away from that he really loves his food he's either eating or watching the snooker you can be certain of one thing Tony will be watching the match and Jimmy says hey what do you think the match is going oh, let me tell you Jimmy I think this that and the other he's never anywhere else but watching or having his dinner you know, and um, I, really, I'm, I really miss him this year yeah. actually not on the tour
0: didn't make it through Q yeah. school and it's a real shame I hope he gets back mm. he was a real hothead I mean even late in his career I remember the world seniors down in Portsmouth. Yeah, He'd right. lost, I, I think, to uh, Tony Chapel. And uh, I think it might be. It, it was Dave Harold. It was Dave Harold. That's right. He'd lost the match to Dave Harold. Come upstairs, and <clears> the guy <throat> he's with. All he said to him was, "Bad luck." Yeah, <laughs> Not repeat the language. <laughs> that unleashed entirely <a> <laughs> rain. that went on for about five minutes. <laughs> totally unwarranted. What I will say about Drago, though, I don't think there's ever been a player whose best, and whose worst, is so far apart. At his best, he was unstoppable. Brilliant player. He played John uh, Parrott in the British Open at Derby at the Assembly Rooms. I think it was in the last 16. And he won 5-1, and no-one would have beaten him that night. I was actually in the arena. It was impossible to beat him the way he played. You couldn't leave him safe. He knocked everything in, and he played good safety himself. And you think, well, he could go on and win this. And the next round, no good at all. But at his best, he was simply inspirational.
3: OK, Neil, number? 4... Number four is Dave Harold, who we've just mentioned.
0: Dave Harold, the
3: Stoke I mean, Potter.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I, I I remember playing him in the UK Championship one year, um, and Jan Verhass It was quite early in Jan's refereeing career, I think, and the miss rule was quite uh, in its infancy as well. And uh, I was called a miss, which was actually absolutely the correct decision, but I was mm. not quite and, and a miss where I, I was trying to hit a reds and I hit the black on the way through, and the reds went all over the table because uh, Dave, Dave and, and is trying to get the balls replaced and all that and, and Jan said to me, uh, Neil, would you like to help me? I said, listen, you call them this, you put them back, I'm going to sit there. And Dave just looked at me and, uh, it I was quite an, and I still speak with Jan about it. But Dave was that kind of character. I found him quite frustrating to play. I played him in the World Championship the last time I got to the Crucible. As a qualifier, I thought this is a good draw and Dave played brilliantly against me. He's a very good player, one of the toughest guys yeah. to beat. Yeah. I never got to know him very well off the table, actually. But um, I think you know. I think he. I think he enjoyed a drink. He's a good lad. And another guy that's missed from the tour. Yeah.
2: Strangely enough, the, the, the history that I've got with Dave Farrell goes back a long way. And and the, the, what I'm going to say about it as a match I played him it was actually to turn professional. It was either it was best of nine at Blackpool summer of ninety, and the winner turned pro and the loser went home. And that was basically it. That just obviously doesn't happen these days. Um, and, and yeah, I was the lucky one to come through. But uh, yeah, it was it was
0: good days. I remember him well. Good Got to a final, obviously, of the Grand Prix, losing to John Higgins. He won a ranking event as well as a five hundred to one of the old Asian Open in Bangkok. Uh, beat Darren Morgan in the final, and he played brilliant. Didn't he? And he played absolutely he played. superbly throughout that tournament. The conditions weren't the best. I thought, because he not got a great amount of power because of his cue action, he would really suffer there, but he didn't. He got stuck in and he beat some very, very good players, ended up winning the title. And uh, it's a statistic we always come out with, a story we always come out with, but his brother had a a tenner on him at 500-1. to How about that?
3: He was also the opponent when Stephen Hendry broke his arm at the Crucible, because Dave was his opponent. Now, you'd imagine hearing that news... He'd be jumping for joy, but of course, I think he absolutely hammered him, didn't
0: he? Well, Stephen was <laughs> 7-1 up overnight, yeah. and I was very fortunate, and I thank him to this day. A, a <laughs> member of Stephen's team actually rang me and told me he'd broke his arm, so I actually broke the story on Radio 5, and I'm really worried for Stephen, because you don't want to see anybody lose in the World Championship under those circumstances. And he came back out, and he played so gingerly in the first frame of the day. Lost it, and you think, Oh no, you know, this is going to be a nightmare. And then the next frame, he had a, a big century and ended up winning 13 2. That's how good he was, Hendry. Yeah, but Dave was really happy with that. <laughs> um, go on, Phil. Uh, I'll go for number one,
2: Fred Davis.
1: Well, a legend. I mean, one of the all
2: time greats. Where will we start with Fred? Well, I've got really only one story quickly with Fred. I was, I think, I was present in his last match as a professional. I might have been, it was at the Norbrek, and, and um, I think it was a guy from Leeds, Chris Cookson, who you, you, you'll obviously yeah. remember. He's uh, from Preston. Uh, sorry, Preston. Um, Get it right, Alan. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, Chris, I think, beat him 10-1, and Fred came out into the, from the auditorium, <coughs> he came out into the practice area, there was about six practice tables, and there was probably half a dozen guys practicing, and, and maybe 50 guys scattered around the room, it was a big room and everyone sort of stopped and sort of the applause and you know so he was a grand old man of the game wasn't
1: he? Yeah. never used to practice apparently uh, as I'm told him, in the last few years he used to play uh, matches he had the same cue all his career also Yeah. Uh, which as I remember it towards the end of his career it looked like it, it, he'd had it all his career it looked like a really really old cue but he was you know one of the last of that generation wasn't he he was a great snooker player a great player I watched him in the qualifiers towards the end of his playing career as well and um in amongst them he was still really really good but at long range because
0: he'd lost it by then well when Alan got to the semi-final of the world championship this year I mean a phenomenal achievement 45 weren't you at the time obviously now everyone's saying how can a 45 year old get to the semi-final of the world championship well in 1978 Fred was 64 (laughs) when he got to the semi-final and I absolutely to this day will say he should have got to the final he should have beaten Perry Mans. he missed, missed that pink you know he could have easily got to the final and that you can't quite comprehend that. Yeah, it would, that. Have, been, it would no. have been quite something. Yeah. There's
3: footage on YouTube of, I think it's the year after, so it was 79, he makes a century at the Crucible. And at the end, the referee applauds. That's right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just so impressed. So yeah. he would have been 65, <laughs> not he? Yes, yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. also Billiards, I mean, he was a world Billiards champion. Just an amazing person. Mm. But in the shadow of his brother,
0: you can't get away from that. Obviously Joe Davis was the first world champion, 15 times world champion. I wasn't alive in 1946. Right, OK. I, was, clear that up. I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't there. But, you know, Fred was getting closer and closer and closer to Joe. And I think Joe retired because he was, fr- not frightened, but he didn't want to lose his unbeaten record as world champion. And I think Fred was the reason he retired from the world championship.
3: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. OK. Um, Alan, would you like to choose a number? Um, name. Number nine. <laughs> well, th- this person's on this list for one reason only. Maureen McCarthy, Phil.
0: Off you go. <laughs> OK. Ma- Maureen McCarthy. Nobody knew who she was. Even the w- members of the um, women's s- circuit didn't know who she was. She appeared on the list for the Benson & Hedges Championship, which was the satellite tournament. The winner of it got into the Benson & Hedges Masters, and it was played at various locations. Obviously up in Scotland, uh, I remember famously, and <coughs> then it moved down to, to Malvern. And she was on the on the list, and we're thinking, who on earth is she? You know, is she some kind of amazing player who's never bothered to enter a women's tournament because she's too good for them? You know, mm. she's going to blitz them. Men, what kind of player is she? It turned out she wasn't. Turned out she wasn't. <laughs> she played um, a gentleman who, who we all know very well, Mike Dunn, and I think she scored two points in the whole match. Yeah. Which is the lowest ever score in a in a best of nine? I think Mark King holds the record for the lowest ever point scored in a televised best of nine against John Higgins eleven. But she scored two points.
3: Well, she did, and she she, she earned herself probably didn't know this, but she earned herself a rather, a rather clever nickname because uh, it was one of the tournament officials because he, he had the sheet, the marker sheet, and it was like zero zero one zero, and her nickname was Binary, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of something I don't know. But then didn't she? I think then she she moved to Malvern where the tournament was held to practice for the next year. Was That's that right,
0: yeah. yeah. I think it was at the Willie Thorne... it seriously. Willie Thorne's Luka- Centre. That's things very seriously. Yeah, and she it? actually moved to Malvern That's to practice, but she didn't play the following year for some reason. No, well, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. But okay. so two points in a match, that, that takes some beating. She's in the record
3: books. Um, Neil? 13. 13 is Darren Morgan. But, of course, he, he was beaten by Dave Harold in, uh, in that final that he you mentioned. He was.
1: Darren Morgan is, is another one, because he... He was always saying he was going to retire, more so than even Ronnie, and, you know, said that quite a lot in recent years and other players. Almost every tournament, Darren Blade, uh, he said, Oh, I'm, uh, this is my last one. You know, he, just after he lost. <laughs> by some miracle, you know, maybe that's not coincidental. This is this is I'm finishing plan. It shook hands with me and, you know, great to see you. Oh, this is my career over. And of course not only would he appear at the at the next tournament and as if it never happened, and at the end of it when he lost if he lost, he'd say, This is my last tournament for sure. Of course now he still plays when he doesn't have to. It's been in he's a semifinal when are yeah, thinking of it. He's one of the sort of like leading seniors players going. So um Basically, he, he, he doesn't always mean everything he says. we always, I think, all of us have felt like we want to pack it in when we lose. But Darren used to go to the point of shaking hands and saying his goodbyes, yeah. and then reappearing. So that's what I think about Darren. Great character. Great oh, yeah. character. There,
2: there was one a couple of years ago, I think, from Darren, that you, you guys might know some about. Probably you, you do. Phil. It um, was at one of the European Senior Over Forties event amateur thing, and I think he was with was it is it Phil Williams or what? Yes. One of the Welsh guys, and they were rooming. And I think Phil Williams either beat him in the semi final or the final. And they got back to the room and he said, and Darren turned around and said, Thanks very much. You've just ruined my Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they didn't speak a lot for the yeah. rest of yeah. the
0: stay. But uh, that, that's Darren. But they're very competitive, and, and I still miss him on the circuit. Great fun to be around. He asked me once, he was doing some commentary when he started out, what should I do in the commentary box? I said, Darren, just be yourself and say, as, say it as it is. And when he does commentate, that's, a, that's what he does, and I, that's why I like to, to hear him. You know, he, He's got these opinions, whether they're right or wrong, so what. He's got his opinions, and he'll tell them, and I respect him for that. The, the best Darren Morgan story for me, he always thought that he wasn't given the respect that he was due. he got that in his head. And on one occasion, for the first time he got into the world's top eight, and he was absolutely over the moon and the first tournament of the year was dubai and we went to the al naza stadium used to go over that big bridge across yeah. the across the creek and yeah. turn right into the car park there and he oh, this is it now they can't deny me now i'm in the top 8 all this kind of stuff we turned up at the al naza stadium for this dubai classic and there's this massive poster along the along the length of the venue the magnificent 7 and he was the one who was missed out <laughs> he was
3: steam going. <laughs> but also, he won the Irish Masters, didn't he? He won the Irish Masters. I think he then got to the final the year after, and then they never asked him back again.
0: That was <laughs> absolutely disgraceful. He won it one year, he lost 9 8 on the black oh, the God. next year, and he was never invited back. Mm. And also, he did win quite a few tournaments over the years that were discontinued.
3: Yes, he'll you tell you all about them if you sit yeah, yeah. down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah.
0: We'll do one more because
3: I know you, you gentlemen have got to go and work. Earn a proper living, uh, Alan. See if you can pick yourself. Uh, five. You have done, but oh. I d- but I don't. I don't think we should talk about you as you're here because no. that's a bit embarrassing. Um, pick another number. Ten. Number ten. Well, one of the one of the all-time greats, Terry Griffiths.
1: Well, it could take a long time speaking <laughs> about the Griff. No, I mean I've known him a long time since my um, well, dad played him actually um, in the English Amateur Championships uh, and beat him. My dad did actually mm. yeah, And this is going back to the, I think the mid seventies. Uh, and. I it became apparent what a great player he was. He was beating Patsy Fagan at the time, and no one used to beat Patsy in London. Um, but he was playing English Amateur Champions Championship as a Welshman, which a few people found a bit strange. But that was kind of that's the way that, that it was. Um, I've known him ever since, and there was too many stories to tell. But he's t- truly one of the legends of the game for me. Do anything for you, and he, you know, he is kind of Mister Snooker for me.
2: Mm. Uh, there was a couple of ones for me actually when I first turned pro, and then recently. Um, my my debut at the Crucible Terry beat me I think it was 13, 11 or 12 anyway and I was pretty devastated I I can normally let go of a defeat but I was crying in the dressing room after the match only really because the guy I was with started bubbling so I I blame him but then funny enough this year when when Ding hammered me at, at the Crucible Griff actually came in the dressing room and he sort of gave us a hug and and you know the way he does, he's like that. He's that kind of guy. He gets emotional, and I'm not attached to Terry in any way. You know, he just is. A, he's a good guy, and he kind of gave us a hug, and he kind of had a bit of a tear in his eye. And you know, I funny enough, almost had a bit of a tear in myself, just because of the way it, it was quite emotional, and, and it, he's that kind of guy. And so it was funny from the start of my career at the Crucible to literally the, the maybe the end of it. Um, Terry was there and, and mm. it was a
0: nice memory to yeah. have, you know sure. Well I'm sitting around the table with three of the people I respect a lot in the game and Terry's in that group as well, you know how can you not like the guy, he's just such a genuinely warm individual and when you're around him he's funny, extremely dry sense of humor yeah. Yeah, yeah. but he's also very very caring as Alan's just mm. said and he's not selfish in any way, he's actually not like a really good world champion, he's not He's not self-absorbed at all, is he? You know, he's, he's he's very caring about other people. So that I love about him. But the other thing you've got to say is when he won that championship in '79, he played fantastically. The amount of frames he won from well behind, with lovely clearances, it was one of the great performances for me. And when you think that in his previous professional match before that championship was in the UK qualifiers, and he'd lost it nine-eight to Rex Williams after being eight-two up, and then he goes to the Crucible and does that. Astonishing, mm, yeah.
3: Yes, and also now, just finally, now he's become a coach. There are certain people who have become attached to players in various capacities down the years. Who, let's let's face it, quite like the limelight and quite like to sort of be mentioned and so on. He's the opposite. He stays in the background because, of course, he's got nothing to prove. He's done it all himself. Mm. So I have every respect for him as well. Thank you to you all for your comments. Just but just, but, just yeah. one more, sorry, oh, yeah. actually,
2: but with Terry. I, I was fortunate enough. We're talking about, about him being a nice guy, a caring guy, and he is. Um, I had been pro about two or three years, and he actually invited me down. He stayed in Clonakilty at the time and um, invited me down to the house, and I stayed overnight with him, uh, two or three nights. Done a little exhibition in the Matchroom Club, and it, it, it had one of these big fancy houses with the the, the, the fountain in the driveway, <laughs> and it was like a roundabout and all that sort of stuff. It was funny in the morning. I was in like it was like literally a guest room. It was like Fork Ranch. <laughs> so the phone's gone. I picked up the phone that's at the side of the bed so I've, it was a bit like a big hotel room fancy the Phone's going. I picked up and it was Terry he was in the kitchen he said Bre- breakfast is ready and, you know it was a big massive house and it, and it but it was fantastic and actually the snooker room he had on the end of the house I don't know if any of you guys ever got the chance to be We weren't obviously as close to him as you but I I thought I knew him really well. It (laughs) turns out I
1: was never invited to that house. Nothing (laughs) like that happened.
2: His snooker room attached to the side of the house is maybe the nicest snooker room I've ever seen in my life. It was Chesterfield Suite, Big Mahogany Bar, Gantry, Table Immaculate and it was the table that he beat Jimmy in the semis of 89. The semi-final table at the Crucible, and it was there was a there was a white uh, on the end of the table where you normally see the Riley or BCE sign. There was just a white piece of paper, and it was signed by Jimmy White. And so that he, he held Jimmy in great esteem, didn't he? And, yes. You know, so that was uh, a personal thing. For him. And
0: that's the other thing we've got to remember about Turi. Didn't just win the World Championship; he won the Majors.
3: Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, th- this has been a little bit like an episode of Parkinson, a very niche one, it's got to be said. But uh, thank you all, and uh, we'll see you next time.